Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. For more information and to donate online, go to 3cr.org.au. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Most people I know are in a book club. They're in it for a number of reasons, and some of those reasons aren't about literature or reading. Today, we've got a guest who's had a very different idea. Welcome, Kerry Q. Well, thank you, Jan. Now, Kerry and friend Doris Brett have put, put a book together called The Sunday Story Club. So, the day is pretty obvious, Sunday. But in the preface of the book, you write that you wanted to create a salon. How is a salon different to a club? Well... Um, we, we were basically sick of small talk. I mean, we'd only just met and we, we decided, you know, we live in Melbourne and, you know, maybe there's more to life than talking about football and the weather. I mean, maybe for some people that is it. <laughs> but we wanted to do something deeper. So we started this. It's a book club without books. Now, we love book clubs. Um, but what we do is ask a quirky or unusual question. So it sidesteps your... Uh, standard narrative of explaining your life experiences. And and if we were going to talk about books, the question we would ask is, why do you read? Ah, mm, so So people get a chance to reflect on it. Right. Now, Kerry, you're a journalist and Doris has, is a psychotherapist. Do you think it's your occupations that gave you this interest to explore people's stories? Well, I think we were looking at how conversation has degraded over the time. Now, you can go to any cafe now and see how people are not talking. They look, they're face-to-face with screens all the time. And it seems as if conversation has gone through this evolution where we started with face-to-face conversation with the voice and then we got to the telephone and then we got to um, uh, voicemail or... or Uh, emails and then we got to text messages and now we're down to the angry face emoji and it's almost like we're back to the caveman grunt and it it was just this desire to escape also this minimum you know communication but also um, something that involves a reality a truth whereas we've got we're surrounded by fakeness all the time now and you know curated images and uh, messages and we just wanted to bring it back to something real and raw and unfiltered well how do you choose the questions then you know you you you, you have a question that that uh, these people can reflect on for a month before they come to the club the questions. Well, we... we, we Not what is life. Well, I was going to say we true. fight it out. What we do is we have a very healthy discussion <laughs> about what we feel um, would be a question um, that will unearth an unusual story. And uh, one of the questions you might like, well, you, you need time to reflect on it, would be is um, the fairy godmother arrived um, at your birth with her wand and she gives you one gift for life, what do you choose? Oh. <laughs> and they, and sometimes the answers are very funny, and sometimes they're really deep and intense. And that's the this unexpected result um, is a part of the joy of this salon. And sometimes they tell stories about themselves that they've never, never voiced before. Uh, that's right, because what, um, what what we talk about in the salon is it's non-competitive and non-judgmental. And I think 
We're so far beyond that in everyday conversation now. People, you, you can see what television is, any of those um, reality shows, it's all about being judgmental. And we just open it up to just say, just talk, and we will listen. And that's the other thing. People in everyday conversations often interrupt one another, and so you don't actually get to finish some statement you might want to make or a story you might want to tell. So we create the space which is... Um, People will sit and listen. So what are the responses like? Well, the, the, the salon members, and we've been doing this for five years now, just love it. And we invite strangers. I mean, it can be people who know each other, but we've invited complete strangers um, uh, to each other, and still it worked. And when we were in Sydney recently, recently talking at the Happiness and Its Causes conference, we ran a, a salon and we had men and we had young women. And that question about the fairy godmother was the one we used because um, it's it's uh, it, it's challenging, but it's, you can go either way. And um, we had you know one fellow in his sixties say, "Look, he always did the right thing. He listened to his parents. He followed um, you know what his teachers advised. He had a good job, but." He just so envied creative people. And I think he, he, he didn't articulate, but he was wishing that he'd sort of kicked and fought a bit more against doing the right thing, you know. And, <sighs> yeah, so, and a young girl answered. She was in her 20s. She said she was on her third course. And what she wanted was just to be clear as what she wanted to do. In other words, she wanted clarity. I mean, we all do, don't we? Wouldn't mm. that be nice? But it's an interesting part of uh, a younger generation that, it is very hard for them to find the path they want. So the book, the um, Sunday Story Club, you've actually got the, um, the you've written down some of the stories that were told to you. So these, you know, and it really is a bit of a look in to these characters. They've really searched their soul. Well, all the stories are anonymous uh, which is a part of um, the book. I mean, we want people to run their own salon, so we, we tell them the questions and give them, a, you know, any guidelines that we feel would help um, so they can have the same experience of how amazingly uplifting it is. Uh, but what we did was, with their permission, we asked them if um, some of these stories, and there were hundreds of them, so we picked a range and asked them if we could then sit down with them and talk in more depth about the story they had told in the salon. And I think your journalistic abilities came through on a bit of the editing there. Well, 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 it, it didn't, it didn't. It was quite funny. Doris and I were at each other for a while there because, does that sound good, co-authors? <laughs> we'd, we'd never written a book together because um, I was writing it up like a journalist, if, if you, which is facts and non-emotive language. And um, what it really needed was a short story approach. Yeah. And... I was. I felt Doris was criticising my writing. I've written for thirty years. Don't tell me how to write. So in the next salon, she put a question: What role has criticism played in your life? Has criticism, you know, either received or given, had a major impact on you? And it really, we had to sit and listen, and it opened up a conversation about editors and writing for us too. The others in the com- had different criticism, but it's amazing how. In that salon, people who have been criticised at eight years of age still carried it when it was vicious criticism, you know? 
Well, that was one of my favourite stories, if you can have a favourite story. It was uh, The Small Shrift, and it was about a young girl oh. who was always told she was little, she was she she was useless, she, um, she had to look after two donkeys when she was seven and dig holes for them in the snow. <laughs> that, that's right, and she didn't realise, she got no help from her parents, yeah. and she didn't realise that um, that lack of help or even lack of the tools. She was trying to, you know, use a pitchfork, which was full size, and she was only, you know, a small person anyway. And it took her all her life to come to terms with the fact that being short doesn't mean you, you're doing things badly. It means you yeah. need different equipment. I, look, I, I read that as in, in, being of short status myself, that, you know, even though you are small, you can still be powerful. Yes. In some way or another. That's, that's absolutely... And, and that I, came through in that story. And she wasn't the only one. That was one person. It was amazing how many women felt being short was such a disadvantage. And even things like entering a room. If you're short, it, they felt their presence wasn't as strong as someone, you know, big and loud, which <laughs> I feel that. I feel those <laughs> shoes. But you didn't know. I didn't know that that um, was how short people saw their own, you know, place in the world. And another one you, uh, the discussion question was things not as you assume them to be. And look, this one started out incredibly. I'm just going to read from the first. Oh, please. My first husband left when our daughter was nine years old. I came home from work one day and found a note on the kitchen table that said, leave my books. I'll come back for them later. I've taken my clothes and I'm not coming back. Don't tell anyone. And by the way, the power is off. Ring this number. And, and the interesting thing about that story is he didn't just leave. He disappeared. Yeah. He left his job. He had an academic position. He left that. He didn't tell the family. He just disappeared. And she was in shock. She didn't know why he'd left. The she, assumption was, you know, the marriage may not have been perfect. Or <laughs> if he might have mentioned something. And so she went through this grief and despair and shame but what happened was, which I think is really um, quite entertaining, well, it's funny in a tragic way, which, which all these tragic stories have, is that everyone was telling her, don't take him back. Don't ta- <laughs> if he reappears, don't take him back. So she'd made up her mind and she didn't take him back. But what, what happened was, after he'd had several um, relationships, yeah. um, he reappeared uh, and eventually, some f- further down the track, he was dying. And who's the person that turns yeah, up? Yeah, his first his wife. Yeah. And what, what happens? She ends up with his ashes. So she did take him <laughs> in the end. And through that story, we get the story of incredibly horrible mother-in-laws and science fiction con- conventions. So that's not bad, is it? <laughs> yes. Now... There is, from page 142, I'd like you to read Kerry Q. This is, about, this is from the book The Sunday Story Club. And the storyteller grew up in a family with 12 siblings and she questions if her family really ever knew her. Now, this is what, oh, well, in our busy life, maybe it's still the case. I'm not sure that my parents really knew any of their children. They knew what they looked like, of course, and what they achieved in school and so on. But they didn't know who they were inside. They didn't know what they thought, felt, feared, loved or hoped for. Emotional issues were never mentioned, let alone discussed. There was a matter-of-factness to everything and no curiosity as to why someone might feel or think one thing or another. 
we were brought up to adopt that same matter-of-factness, a kind of business-like approach to life. It happened, it's over, move on. Everything was external and nothing was internal. I never thought about my life, my inner life that is, until I was in my 60s and I went to my first salon. So here we are, back at the salons. Now, as I said, this book has, uh, and Kerry has also said, at the back it's how to put on a salon. And, you know, some you even give some of the questions to ask about uh, in, in the salon and warm-up activities and everything. But who don't you invite to a salon? <laughs> well, we've had the experience, I suppose, by doing it for five years, of there have been occasional... Um, misplacements, uh, people obviously who are bossy, but there are some uh, people who in life want to tell everyone how they should live their life. And that's not the idea of the salon. We sit and listen to a story and we don't want someone to turn around and say, you know, oh, what you should have done is this. <laughs> and what we found is they are consistently terrible at telling everyone how to run their life. So you, you, you add your own judgment as to who would be interested. Right. So a book club that, well, like a book club without books. Real life tales of love, loss, trauma and resilience. Well, Kerry Q, thank you very much for, and, and Doris Brett for putting this and enlivening us, broadening our ideas of what we can do. And the book is called The Sunday Story Club, published by Pan Macmillan. Well, there are actually parallels with the book I've got, real life and love, so to speak. But life is led on probation, Jan. It's a trial that tests our mettle and shows the substance of which we are made. Philip Salem explores this notion in his latest novel, The Return. So, Philip, welcome to 3CR. Oh, good to be here. Thank you, David. This is basically a love story but it differs from the sort of convention and stereotype we normally expect. Uh, it's a, one of the things that interests me about writing and, and some of the things that are not in writing would be if like the examination of friendship. And I think friendship is, is sort of underrated in some ways. And this relationship, the central relationship between the two characters, Trevor and Elizabeth, uh, is really a friendship. Now, what happens to it thereafter Maybe. Well, you know, it, it, it shades into a kind of love story because you can't have love stories without people necessarily um, con- uh, affirming their love to each other in, in the ways we expect, like through rituals of marriage or, you know, de facto. Well, the, yeah, all of the, or... the social expectation that surrounds it. Now, dare I say it, but Trevor and Elizabeth in some ways are failed characters. Would I be going too far? No, no, that's right. They're, they're people who sort of around 50 years or approaching 50 years of age have decided that they really haven't confirmed, if you like, the things they might have hoped for in themselves. They failed in that sense, but they're not failed in the sense that they do understand that and now they're trying to come back. But there are reasons why they have in the eyes, in their own eyes or in society's eyes, they've failed. Now, for example, Trevor runs a bookshop um, and is in a marriage that is hardly working. Interestingly enough, you sort of put in these interesting facts. 38,000 people do live in estranged relationships, living under the same roof. You've got all this detail that comes out about the reality of people's lives. Yeah, well, I, I, I think I'm someone who's interested um, completely and utterly. I've lived uh, the creative life, if you like, all my, all my life, but I'm, I love detail and Something I think that took me from poetry to fiction 
was the extent to which detail can be um, brought in. In fact, I can't stop bringing it in. As soon as I start writing, detail starts coming through into the work. I'm, my idea of creativity amongst all the ineffables is that you have to have the medium itself, and the medium has its own rules. So poetry is not the place of massive amounts of detail of the, from the world, but fiction is. So you know, there's a lot of non-fiction, a lot of ordinary worldly reality in what we call fiction. But that adds to that image of uh, Trevor in his relationship with his wife, Diana, which is really a, a relationship that is, is no longer going anywhere. They're living virtually separate lives. Juxtaposed to this, we have Elizabeth. Now, she works as an editor of books from home, and she suffers, and you're going to have to correct my pronunciation on this, suffers from prosopognosia, is that yeah, correct? Prosopagnosia, yeah. Now... Explain. <laughs> well, um, prosopagnosia is face blindness. It means that a person who suffers it very badly cannot recognise anybody by looking at their face. And that includes their mother and father, anybody. No one is recognisable. They have an entire face blindness. So they have to memorise people by other means. You know, they have to observe very acutely aspects of the other person. But you use this as an image in the relationship in many ways because it is uh, visual features that we often go by when we're attracted to yeah. somebody. So all of a sudden, you're using this as a way of getting behind that stereotype. Well, Elizabeth um, comes a cropper, of course, as you can imagine, because you end up talking to people and thinking they're someone else or the reverse, not talking to them when they are someone she really knows. And so the thing about Trevor is that she, Trevor moves into her house as a lodger and she's not even sure at any one moment necessarily whether it's him. So she, <laughs> she recognises him, but she recognises him by his limp. He's got a, a bad leg injury. And ever, whenever he limps around the place, she knows it's Trevor. But, of course, the thing about this, which is a bit hard for Trevor, is that Trevor is recognisable by a major physical weakness in his system, which is also, to some degree, a trauma in his past. Now, this builds because, basically, if I can put it this way, both Trevor and Elizabeth are, are suffering from a form of blindness. Because, I mean, Trevor's car accident, which has added to the limp, something that's happened in the past leaves him with a sense of guilt. And here's the connection as well with what Kerry was talking about. He also has the legacy of a father who has deserted him. Uh, so he's, he's got to carry that weight as well. Yes, well, his father disappeared 35 years earlier than the book begins at. And uh, there was no explanation. The father just um, went out of the picture. His father had been a geologist working in mining areas in the northwest of Western Australia, among other places. And there was some suggestion his father was involved in a lot of crooked deals, in, in which uh, those years there were many. And so he, um, he, he actually is a, is a kind of an absence in Trevor's life. But it's an absence that speaks, shall we say, to his character and how he acts and behaves. Yeah, Trevor, Trevor is... Incomplete. I mean, there is a, there's a reference to Fritz Perls, the psychologist in there, and Perls referred to the sort of holes we carry within our, ourselves. And Trevor has a hole which is father. So there's a great absence in him. And the fact is that though his father is officially declared dead, no one ever found him. He's just a, 
So he remains, as, as, as the text says, without remains. Yeah, but you then have that legal framework, that legal image of what is life and death. But juxtaposed to this, we then have Elizabeth's background, whose mother followed the Bhagwan Rajneesh and the orange people that practised free love. And here's Elizabeth having to carry that legacy. So in, in many ways these two characters counterpoint each other. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, the, the Elizabeth's mother was an absent mother in the sense that she was so entirely self-regarding that she didn't really particularly care for her daughter because she was more interested in, in meeting the Bhagwan and becoming enlightened, which meant, of course, essentially having the most extraordinary sex life because <laughs> that was the way that, that a lot of the orange people indulge themselves. A bit of meditation, a lot of the other. But, but Elizabeth has this... Her absence is the presence of the mother... Who, who really wasn't mothering and who continues now to, to live and be a, a burden because Elizabeth has become the dutiful daughter looking after the mother who never looked after her. Yeah, so the ironies. There are a lot of ironies in the, the book. A lot of ironies and a lot of this notion of the expectation of how we should behave, which stems from this notion of how we should be in love, how we should behave with our parents and such like. But in some ways we also do this to ourselves or impose... Uh, limitations or expectations on ourselves. So Elizabeth, for example, uh, is concerned about her diet, which is actually the cause of the first meeting between Trevor and Elizabeth. Which she, she faints outside his, his uh, shop. But she's talking to a doctor about uh, her diet. Um, so, you know, um, you have orthorexia nervosa, ortho, uh, as in she almost coughs, Orthodox? Uh, quite so. Perhaps you obsess over the correctness of your diet and then worry if you can't keep up. You feel you must at all times be eating the right food. Do you ever feel like that? Ah, you do. Lapses aren't like sins unless they make you feel that way. Elizabeth, you might be worrying about healthy eating so much it's making you unhealthy. The paradoxical absurdity of this sinks in. She is a food moralist. She eats with an overly strict sense of the right and wrong ways of food, uh, ways of eating, when and how much, and what a ridiculous thing, let alone a ridiculous thing to suffer from. She is both puppeteer and puppet. Mm. So even at this level of, of just your diet, we're imposing these sort of expectations on ourselves. Yes, yeah, so uh, as Elizabeth said, her healthy eating is making her sick, which is actually the paradox that many of us live through, not necessarily just about diet, but all kinds of things we think are the things we should be doing. And so in both cases, Elizabeth and, and Trevor are getting a second chance. The, the returns of the title has many elements to it, but one is that they are returning to try to try much harder at what they really wanted to do. Elizabeth, as a book editor, is taking on a major editorial task with a major new writer, um, and Trevor is trying to go back to his early life as a painter. Trevor had given up the painting life because he, for various reasons, but the car crash being one of them. And the main reason he wants to go back is not to be a famous artist. It's not about those kinds of things. It's to, it's to return to an inner practice. To hear your inner voice. Now, what's interesting is then the expectation. You've, you've got Elizabeth, whose mother was in the uh, Orange People sect, and you, in some ways, use that, this notion of the, the charisma of someone driving people in terms of their behaviour and conduct. But, the uh, again, Trevor and Elizabeth are almost the opposite 
uh, of that they're ordinary people without this charism or energy sort of thing. And and in some ways, do they feel at a loss because of it? Or no, I don't think so. I think they feel what we normally feel. But in fictional terms, they are very ordinary people. They are not exceptional. And one of the things that drives me as a writer is to find, in this book um, and in my previous book, Waiting, characters who are just quite ordinary people, people who we often just don't even look at, who actually, of course, have the same extraordinary in our lives as we all do, but um, people who actually either indulge in versions of it which are very eccentric. I love eccentricity. And I like mischief. And both these characters are serious characters who have mischief in them. But their their seriousness is sort of taken over a bit, and so they're really trying to they're trying to get past that into something that gives back to them. And in doing it, they recognise, and this is the this is the other term or theme for all of Elizabeth's lack of ability to recognise faces. The book is about recognition, people recognising things in themselves and things in each other, and then coming towards each other, or in the case in some a particular case rejecting another person. But they don't realise in some ways what they're recognising. So we have, for example, Trevor's artwork. And it's, in some ways, Diana, his uh, sort of, well, not ex, because they're still married, they haven't divorced. She sees his artwork. And he's doing, well, one of the things he's doing is, is montage, which I find interesting, putting pieces of the puzzle together. Mm. So you've used that as an image, but also then that expression for events and things that have occurred in his life as well as in his relationship with Diana, which she recognises when she sees the yeah. Yes, Diana sees, uh, and so she recognises, without wanting to have much to do with him anymore, when she sees her art, his artwork, she's um, very um, taken by it and, and knows immediately what she's seeing, whereas Elizabeth isn't too sure. And, and Trevor's, when Trevor shows his work to an art gallery manager, she's not too sure either. In fact, she couldn't care less. But so Trevor, Trevor's... Um, Trevor's uh, discovery, if you like, of what he's doing is not always to do with the work itself. It's to do with the process of getting there. And he's quite rigorous. He's no, he's, this is not sentimentalised. I, I don't actually like sentiment at all. I'm very against it. So this is, these are not sentimental people. It's not sentimental writing. Trevor actually uh, does something quite radical with his artwork later in the piece, and I'm not going to say what that is indicating, in fact, that his rigour is more powerful and stronger, and he is stronger, than any, any weak or clichéd desire to become an artist. But he's, he's got to explore that artistic self, which he's subdued for so long, yeah. uh, in order to, to find himself in some ways, uh, etc. But in many ways, all of this comes about simply because of an accident, where Elizabeth faints outside his bookshop. And so it it's ordinary in that sense that the most ordinary of things can lead slowly to amazing outcomes. Yes. Well, I think that's the, the power of fate. And when I say fate, I'm being ironic because I don't think it's fate at all. It is accident. An accident is, is what um, both drives um, our ongoing or continuing lives, but also scares us because, of course, it's out of control. Um, so these are two people who are, who actually can't make good, in a way, out of accident. But in some ways it goes to what Kerry was talking about with a salon where people are carrying a weight with them for so long. And Trevor's father <laughs> turns up in the story. 
Um, so yes, I think we can admit that. Trevor's father does actually turn up officially dead and so officially dead that he can't be declared alive. Yeah. But then... <laughs> it's, how, it's true. It can happen. <laughs> but how do you have a relationship with somebody like that? That's the challenge. And just before we end, I think the cover is astonishing. It's, it's like one of those psychological images. Is it, are they faces or is it a vase? It's, but the two heads are intertwined in that regard. So the book is The Returns. Uh, the uh, author, Philip Salem, it is a transit lounge release. So, Philip, thank you very much for coming in today. Thank you very much, David. And I was speaking with Kerry Q, and she's co-written The Sunday Story Club with Doris Brett, and that's Pan McMillan.